the woman sitting across from me uh, interrupted what I was saying and said, don't use that term. And I was taken back. And I said, what do you mean? I just said, girl. And she goes, do you want me to call you boy? You're tuning in to the InsureBreak podcast. It's the podcast about the latest and greatest trends in insurance. I'm your host, Ash, and I invite you to join us as we interview experts and executives in insurance, covering innovative practices, technology advancements, and insight into the future of insurance. This podcast is sponsored by Zelros. Zelros is an AI software solution for insurance to hyper-personalize the customer buying experience. With insurance recommendations across all channels, boosting client acquisitions, cross-sell and upsell. In this episode, we sit down with Craig Chapman, a retired veteran of the finance and insurance industry. Craig has worked in three countries, held various C-suite positions including CEO, CFO and CTO across consumer banking, commercial banking and other sectors. Listen in to this episode to learn about Craig's experience working in different countries in the financial industry. How technology's role in banking and insurance has changed over the years. And why diversity, equity, and inclusion is so important for businesses to actively promote and foster. Make sure to stick around until the end to soak in the decades of Craig's knowledge and experience. We are joined today by Craig Chapman. Craig, welcome to the show. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Ash. It's good to be here. So you've had a um, long career in finance and insurance. Uh, can you just give us a brief background? Um, I've worked in three countries. I've worked in uh, retail, consumer, uh, finance, backroom operations, commercial banking. I've been a CFO, uh, CTO. I started in a branch um, as a trainee back in uh, 1979, and then uh, worked my way through uh, management, uh, moved to uh, Australia, I guess would be my first large move. And I ran a company in Australia, uh, went from there to Canada, and then moved into mortgage banking and then banking, consumer banking, and then commercial. In uh, Australia, I worked for Household International. I was sent down there uh, for a turnaround situation. The, the company was losing money. It was a finance company and a building society, which would equate to a savings and loan in the United States. Washington Mutual came along and and uh, offered me a job to run their consumer finance company out of Florida. I ran that for uh, a period of time. And uh, then they asked me to come up to Seattle um, through a number of acquisitions that they had. They had built a, uh, or not built, but they had a number of commercial businesses that they had acquired, none of which were uh, uh, integrated with each other, and they didn't have any uh, strategy for those businesses. So uh, I took over those businesses uh, along with the consumer finance arm, and we developed a strategy. And on the commercial side, uh, we... When I left the bank, we were the largest multifamily lender in the United States. When you look back at your career, you know, when I say the words crisis or big change, are there certain specific experiences that come to mind? Uh, yes. Uh, so I would say in my career, I, I went to Australia. I was uh, in my uh, early 30s and uh, first time I'd ever been uh, CEO of a company. It was a subsidiary, but CEO of a company. And it was a standalone company. We were rated by S&P and Moody's. And down in Australia, losing about $5 million a year. 
And the charge from uh, the U.S. when they sent me down there was that uh, we have to uh, turn this thing around. It was having uh, adverse impact on the U.S. company and uh, its ratings and EPS, I guess, uh, that was being attributed to the company. Uh, when I went down there, it's a, you know, it was a different culture. First night, I was walking around the building around 5 o'clock, and people were in their office drinking beer. And uh, I couldn't believe it. I mean, I just thought that this was atrocious and uh, thought about it for a minute. And then I went down to the general counsel's office and said to the general counsel, you know, what in God's name is going on here? And so he explained to me that, you know, look, you're in a different culture. This isn't the U.S. And the U.S. doesn't tell us what to do. But this was just the way Australian business worked at, at five o'clock. People uh, would kick back and, and have a beer. I think that was eye-opening for me from uh, two standpoints. One, just the realization that I'm in a different culture and I have to understand that and take that into account. And uh, then secondly, um, it was a challenge for me from a, a leadership standpoint. It was clear to me, you know, I'm a foreigner. Um, I don't look at the world the, the way they do. Um, and a, a bit of resentment from them to me as a foreigner coming in and going to be telling everybody what to do. So the need for me to develop coalitions within the company in order to institute change. Initially, I think I was risk averse. The steps that I took, I was concerned about uh, people coming along with the plan and supporting the plan. I was concerned about um, people undermining you know, my authority and my uh, leadership because they wouldn't like the plan. So I think I was very conservative in the early stages. Secondly, I think I stayed to myself a little bit too much. I think I could have opened uh, communication sooner with uh, the people that I worked with or had more communication uh, with them sooner. As far as the successes, I, I, I think that once I broke through that hesitancy or uh, whatever you would call it, you know, I laid out the, the issues that the company had. And I took the senior management team to an offsite meeting and I facilitated uh, meetings. We had a series of meetings to solve those problems. So as, as the CEO, that's all I did was lay out the problems. Here's the issues that we have and you guys have to come up with the solutions uh, to those issues. That was, I think, critical in the, the success of, of uh, the overall plan. And then I would say, secondly, the importance of communication. It's one thing, once the plan was put together, that that plan was, was communicated throughout the organization. And it was communicated in two ways. One, when senior management came up with their plan. Then secondly, we took that plan to the next level uh, in the company. They had to come up with their plan to achieve what the senior management said that they were going to do. And then we took that right to the front line of the organization. So the people working on the line, whether it was in retail, wholesale, commercial, consumer, or backroom processing, that uh, uh, those people had direct line of sight between what their goals were and how that contributed to the overall goals of the company. And then we communicated our progress on that on a weekly basis. You know, this is what we said we had to do, and, and here's our progress. I was looking at all kinds of financial indicators 
to determine, you know, are we on the right track and so forth. And the one that came out uh, as the best indicator for me that I've used uh, ever since is cash flow. Um, you can look at a lot of things, particularly companies that are on the accrual method of accounting. Um, you look at it and, and accrual accounting tells you what happened in the past, but it's not telling you what's happening now. Uh, but cash accounting uh, tells you exactly what's happening now. The, the cash flow statements started to uh, demonstrate that the company was turning around and going in the right direction. And in uh, four and a half uh, years, we turned the, the business around. I think in the um, third year, we made the first year we were profitable. It was the third year we made $5 million. Through all these, you know, changes that you're talking about, these transformations of companies that, you know, you led, how do you feel like, you know, technology uh, played a role in those transformations? Yeah, technology played a big role in the transformation. So as a, a banking or consumer finance company and commercial finance, what we had was a large branch infrastructure and people to staff those branches uh, and equipment in all those branches uh, in order for them to operate. But the utilization, if you just looked at a branch office, regardless of what channel it was in, and looked at the utilization of the physical equipment and the people there, it was very low because customers came in and out uh, and randomly. We couldn't you know, um, make them come in and out at certain times. You could have times when people were backed up at the door and then other times where you had hours and hours of nobody in branch at all. So one of the things that we did as a result, um, and I had uh, been exposed to this because I was on the project in, in the U.S. when we did it, is we centralized the back room. So we took uh, those uh, repeatable uh, processes that were out in the branch that were supportive of both the sales uh, of any of the distribution channels and centralized those. And that took a, um, a lot of technology, not just in the form of putting the, the branches on the network, but we had to have the data to understand what was going on in those branches and what requests were coming in for customers. That led to us building models to forecast uh, what volumes would be of customer calls, of customer requests, of loan applications, uh, of uh, calls to customers for collection reasons. And we needed to forecast those in order to staff in this centralized location and um, do it efficiently. As we were developing those models, we realized this was in the early stages back when Citibank was uh, building or centralizing their back room. One of the things we learned is you could build behavioral models so we could forecast customer behavior. We could look at past history and then we built a model that forecasted the incoming calls uh, by half hour with less than a 3% error rate. And as we built those models, then we started to realize, well, we could use those models on the marketing side. By capturing uh, data of customers who we sent marketing offers to and how did they respond to those marketing offers, it would allow us to target the right customers for those marketing offers. And that's when we started using lifestyle uh, data that you can get out there uh, today. Credit Bureau today, you go to the Credit Bureau and you get information. It was much less regulated at the time. And 
what we were involved in is we actually went to the Bureau and bought all their information every month. We had uh, Bureau information on everybody in the United States. You can't do that anymore today. But that allowed you to build a very robust model as to these are all the consumers out there. And then when you sent them marketing, then they would respond to that marketing. And you could see using lifestyle overlays, what types of customers were these, what zip code were they replying from. And it would allow you to get uh, much more efficient in both the marketing and also the administrative side of the business by understanding what business was coming at you, when you had to have staff when you didn't need staff and so forth. For me, I think in running a business, it's the information that's gathered and the level it's gathered at uh, and the insight that people have into uh, the consumers that they're interacting with. And if you think about it today, we were looking at stuff at a point in time. So credit bureau, you're looking at it once a month. Um, and lifestyle data was probably, I, I don't even know, but off the top of my head, maybe that was uh, assembled once a year. Today, with people's ability to interact with consumers, they're getting it every minute. And, and they're getting consumers' reactions to things instantaneously. So our models forecasted based upon past behavior. Today, you can capture what's happening real time. And with the use of those algorithms, you can see market movements where we couldn't. We couldn't see market movements until after, let's say, we sent out a marketing campaign and the, the response rate dropped precipitously. And you'd say, well, what happened? Then you'd have to try it again and say it, it, it still dropped. Well, the market's moving. Where today, you don't have to wait for that to happen. You don't have to make those mistakes. You have insight into the customer real time as they're, they're demonstrating their preferences to you on the computer every day and on their, their phone and what they're reacting to in all of social media. I would think it's incredibly powerful. So in the last couple of years, uh, Craig, I'm sure you've seen this, you know, we've seen that more emphasis on DEI has been put you know, in the workplace more than ever, right? In the finance and insurance industry, there's a call to diversify and demand for representation. What is your take on diversity, equity, inclusion? It's not a question of, well, I, I need data or something. It's just morally right based on everything that I've been taught and I've learned. And I think, you know, I believe that man is essentially good and wants to do the right thing to treat people less because of where they come from, what they look like what their preferences are is just antithetical to doing the right thing. So that's the first thing. The second thing I would say is as a person who's been socialized in this country, one of the things that we've been taught is that the constitution is the law that we live by. Well, the constitution says that we're all created equal. That says that if we believe in this country, that we should treat everybody equally. The gist of what the founding fathers wanted is they were trying to create something. They didn't say they had it. They didn't say they'd achieved it. I don't think this country, in a majority sense, would have said that we've achieved what we're capable of. We've achieved what the forefathers thought we could do, or we've achieved what the Constitution lays out for us. We're on a journey. It's imperfect. But the Constitution is clear that all men are created equal. And when I say men, I mean men and women. And then third, I think from a business perspective, 
And if I've learned anything about building teams and leadership in a business, it's that you need diversity. If you want to drive off the edge of the earth as fast as possible, then get a bunch of people that look just like you. If you want to do well, then what you need to do is have people who make up for your weaknesses. You have certain strengths and you have to surround yourself with people who have strengths that you lack. When I think of putting a management team together, then I need people with different perspectives and different experiences. When I'm running a business that has global reach, then those experiences and differences I have to include in my management team. If I have them in the management team and I plan to run that company for any length of time into the future, then I need to have people within the company that I can develop to replace the management team that you have there today. So I think from a business perspective, it's absolutely essential that you have diversity, you have equity, and you have inclusion because that's the lifeblood of the culture and the organization. And without that, I don't think you'll be anywhere near as successful uh, because you won't understand the customers that you're trying to reach. Yeah. And Craig, can you share an example of maybe a situation of an injustice or inequality you've seen or experienced that challenged you in the workplace? I grew up in upstate New York, rural uh, area. You know, I was socialized in that community or, or whatever. Um, we did not have a diverse population. Race wasn't anything that we ever talked about, really, uh, one way or the other. So early in my career, I was in a meeting and I was sitting there and somebody asked me a question and I referred to somebody as a girl. And the woman sitting across from me uh, interrupted what I was saying and said, don't use that term. And I was taken back. And I said, what do you mean? I just said, girl. And she goes, do you want me to call you boy? When she said that, did that open my eyes? I had been acting based upon the way I grew up and the way that I was socialized, where I didn't have exposure to any diversity in either people or, or communities or cultures. So what, what advice would you have to executive leadership today? Like, you know, you retired today, but if you could counsel people today, uh, an, an executive, a peer in insurance or finance, what would you say? What would you say to them? A lot of common practice, common belief is that if you try to fix inequities in your business, um, that uh, it'll cost you a lot of money. Uh, it's very difficult. Uh, I think that it can't be looked at as a problem that you're going to fix in the next six months, in the next calendar year, whatever the case might be. But this is a problem that you're going to fix over time in a variety of ways. As a leader in the organization, you have to set those goals out for the organization, explain why they're important to the organization. You have to set benchmarks for the organization to measure that. And then you have to report on those benchmarks and the impacts on the business. And as a leader, that has to be done regularly as a normal part of the business and part of the culture. We have an obligation, a moral obligation, to create an environment where they can excel. And if we create that environment, then I believe the business will, will benefit from that and more than make up for any costs associated with uh, those programs. 
This podcast is sponsored by Zelros. Zelros is an AI software solution for insurance to hyper-personalize the customer buying experience with insurance recommendations across all channels, boosting client acquisitions, cross-sell and upsell. Thank you for tuning in to the InsureBreak podcast. Join us next month as we interview another insurance executive to gain insight on innovative practices, technology advancements, and what the future of the industry looks like. See you next month.